Can you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today we're reading from Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Please be seated. Liz. Well, before we start, I want to say what a privilege it is to have Pastor Kurt, PC, and Jan here today. If you don't know him, he pastored this church for 15 years, 15, uh, beginning at the turn of the millennia, and uh, he's pastored this church through some, especially in the beginning, some very hard seasons, and I, I say this often, if not for the way the Lord used this man in this church, I just don't see how this church would be here. I'm very thankful for you pastoring in the hard times and then the fun hard times like building a building and all that and personally in the transition you know that happened 4 years ago I don't think I have a bigger cheerleader uh, than that man so I'm very thankful for you to have you here with us this morning All right Merry Christmas we can say it now it's Advent season. It doesn't have to be December to say Merry Christmas. We're starting our Advent series. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the birth narrative of, of Jesus. Um, I also want to say, as we're beginning Advent season, uh, December 24th is a Saturday this year. We will have a Christmas Eve service, similar to the ones that we have had. It'll be 4 p.m. here that Saturday. All family, kids, everybody, same room. And then a similar thing on Sunday morning, because we worship when uh, Christmas is on Sunday morning, we'll have one worship service, 1045, same kind of deal. All the kids will be in here with us. We'll make some modifications to the worship, uh, but invite your friends, family. It should be a sweet time. All right, Luke 1, you heard it read. In this passage, we have what is generally known as the Annunciation. This is, this is uh, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and telling her that you are pregnant and you will have a son and the son will be king over a kingdom that will have no end. And at the core of this announcement is the Christmas miracle. And when I say that, I'm actually not referring to the virgin birth. Although it is supernatural miracle, I believe it, the virgin birth is the way the big miracle comes. And that miracle is God taking on flesh, God incarnate. This is this is the biggie, this and the resurrection. I mean, these are 
huge things that God has done to intervene into the course of human history, permanently change it, and make a way for us to be redeemed. This is a big moment in the course of redemption history when Just think about it, God, the the most powerful being that has ever or will ever exist, humbles himself to take on flesh and not just any flesh. You know, he could have have shown up and as popped in as a ruler or a dictator or talking lion. He could have done anything, but what, how did he come? The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and through the virgin birth arrived as a baby, a human baby. Is there anything more powerless and vulnerable than a human baby? I mean, if you're walking down Park Avenue and you walk by some bushes and you hear some rustling and you look in there and there's a dog, your caution's going to go up. (laughs) Even if it's a baby dog, even if it's a cat, even if it's a baby cat, they have diseases and claws. You don't know where that thing's been. But if you see a little human baby in that bush, what are you going to do? You're going to go and try and help it because a human baby is so vulnerable that it probably can't even live very long in that kind of state. That is how the God of the universe entered physically into our world to change it forever. And so I want to look at this passage as God takes on flesh, and I just want us to see two things. I want to see the way God chose to take on flesh and the decision before us now. So the way he took on flesh. God took on flesh through the virgin birth. Both Luke and Matthew are very clear. Mary was a virgin. She was betrothed to Joseph. So that's like a more legally binding form of engagement. It's so legally binding, in fact, that it requires a legal divorce to get out of it. And she was in this period, not yet married, not yet been intimate when she became pregnant. And so the idea of a virgin birth, this, I mean, it's, it's kind of messed with some heads over the centuries. And we live in a culture, many, I'm sure everyone here knows people who would just laugh at the idea of a virgin birth. You know, you, you, you don't really believe that, do you? It's just archaic. They didn't, anyway, they, you have all kinds of, of views outside the church, but even inside the church. I know people that are willing to come and worship, and they want certain parts of Jesus and certain parts of the Bible, but the virgin birth, eh, you know, that's just a step too far. And I know pastors who, because they could not rationalize or scientifically prove the virgin birth, they jettisoned it. And they would say things like, well, people back then were just more gullible than they are now. You know, we, have, we understand science better than they did. To which I would say, okay, they didn't have iPhones or knowledge of quantum physics, but they knew where babies came from. <laughs> they, they understood this. And you, you see this in the passage. In verse 4, Mary responds by saying, how will this be since I am a virgin? So she understood. And there are others who would say, well, this idea of a virgin birth, it just it, it evolved over the years. But but if you study the culture in which Jesus came into, there's nothing about the four major worldviews at that time that would have lended itself to an evolution into God took on flesh and entered the world through a virgin birth. That that would not have happened in the Greco-Roman world. It would not have happened in the Eastern world. Find me any credible Egyptologist that would support that view today. It wouldn't have evolved in the Egyptian culture. And in the Jewish culture, they killed Jesus for saying this. 
So there's no culture in that day in which this view would evolve, that God would take on flesh and enter the world through a virgin birth. So, yes, the virgin birth is hard to understand, but if I'm, I'm honest, so is every birth. <laughs> I mean, last week, if, if you were here, I think probably in the, the first service, we welcomed the youngest person I've ever seen into church, little Miss Emmylou Dixon, three days old, came to church. And this morning, we welcome in for the first time Zachary Meat. Ten months ago, these people did not exist, and now they have bodies and souls and minds. I mean, to me, every birth is a miracle beyond explanation. But what we have to do in this season is see that the virgin birth is about so much more than just a woman getting pregnant without the normal preceding events. Science can produce a virgin birth right now. So that's not the miracle. The miracle is that the baby didn't require a man. That, that's the supernatural part of the virgin birth. And God did this for a very specific reason that we need to see for the virgin birth and the incarnation to not only not be confusing, but to make a lot of sense. The Bible tells us that the main reason that God took on flesh through a virgin, virgin is to make it possible for the full humanity and the full deity to exist in one person. This is, this is really important because outside of Jesus having full humanity and full deity, he cannot atone for our sins. Everything about our faith hinges on this passage that we're looking at. So if Jesus were only fully human, he was not divine, only fully human, well, what would have happened? The sin of Adam, he would have inherited it, and he, he could not have endured all the temptations of this life and remained yet without sin. So if he was only fully human, we don't have an atonement in Jesus Christ. And on the other side, if he was only fully God, which always sounds so weird to say, but if Jesus were only fully God and did not have the full humanity, then he, the temptations would not have been there. He would not have suffered as we suffer. He would not have endured as we are called to endure. And because of that, he could not have been an atonement, a sacrifice for our sin. Both humanity and divinity have to coexist in Jesus for him to be a legitimate atonement and sacrifice for our sins. So there are a couple misconceptions that I do encounter when it comes to this idea of the incarnation. And the first misconception is that, and I see it in different forms, but basically, there was no second person of the Trinity, no Jesus, before this passage. You know, in the Old Testament, it was God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Now, here is where we have God the Son popping on the scene. That's not accurate. God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, has always existed. But what we're seeing here is that he has added to his divinity flesh. He has taken on flesh. And so you have the same person now existing in a new way. We, and, and not just for this season that we read about, permanently, forever existing as the second person who has taken on flesh. This is why... Verse 33 says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom, there will be no end. His, his, this new way of existing is how Jesus will exist for all eternity. 
And in this new nature, he becomes the last Adam who is able to truly render human obedience. He can fulfill the law that we cannot. And he does this in order to secure our redemption by becoming a substitute for us on the cross. He did what we cannot do, and he went and he endured the wrath on the cross that we deserve, trading places with us. And he can only do that if he is fully human and fully divine. I love having Mulaney over there. Now Kurt is an amener over there. I don't care if the first service is larger. The amens mean so much more to me. So thank you both. Where in the world was I? Um, all right. So another part of this misconception is that things went really wrong. And then God decided to add the second person, you know, midway through. But this was always the plan. You can see this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the fall, God comes and he curses Satan. And what does he say? One day there is going to be a man from the line of this woman, from the seed of this woman, who will come and you may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And in this passage, we have the arrival of that one, Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, who has come to reverse the curse that happened in Genesis 3. This is a big passage. And when we understand this, hopefully the virgin birth and the incarnation of Christ goes from silly, confusing, or whatever we might think it is, to absolutely essential and crucial for our faith. And not just for our intellectual faith, but essential to our souls and who we are if we want to have a relationship with God. And if this is true, I would argue that it is, then what we see in this passage is one more picture that our salvation is by faith alone and there's nothing that we can do to add to it. And we see that in the naming of the baby. So it's you know, easily missed you know, when you read this. Mary and Joseph didn't even get to name their first baby. It's a big deal. I mean, I, I, we have stewed over the names of our children. One kid, we could not leave the hospital until we figured it out. I mean, it's just a big deal. It's an honor to give this kid a name with meaning. Mary and Joseph didn't get to do that. They were told by the angel Gabriel, his name will be Jesus, which means what? God saves God saves. So in that one name, you have Christianity in a nutshell. Every other worldview tells you what you need to do to earn your way to God, to merit uh, your acceptance with Him. Only in Christianity does God do the saving. Every other worldview is going to terminate on a prophet who is going to tell you what you need to do to reach God. Only in Christianity does God Himself come as the prophet to tell you what He's going to do to redeem you. There's no other worldview like Christianity. There's no other worldview that has a God with the characteristics that our God has. Tim Keller has this, I think, this great quote on this topic. He says, Christianity is the only religion that has added the attribute of courage to the list of God's attributes. Why? Because only in Christianity has God made himself so weak that he needed it. He became so weak that he faced danger, he faced death, he faced suffering, he faced torture, he faced hunger. So Jesus would live this life under the law. That means he lived in the old covenant to fulfill the law that we could never fulfill on our own. None of us can do that. We are born, we inherit the sin of Adam. We are born in active rebellion against God. 
We, we're so far gone that God, ha- the way God reaches us, because there's nothing that we can do to reach Him, He enters into our world by taking on flesh through a virgin birth. I mean, if you think about just how far God would have to go to come and reach and redeem us, what alm, what sacrifice could we possibly offer God that's going to merit any kind of salvation or redemption? We add nothing to the finished work of Jesus Christ, we're simply called to believe and trust and follow. We bought our Christmas tree on Friday. How many of you have your Christmas trees up? Okay. Yes, for us, Friday's when Christmas starts. Friday after Thanksgiving, tree goes up, lights go up because we're Christians. And, and we, we were talking, we have lots of Christmas memories. And I, I said this last year, some of you may have heard it, but one of my favorite memories, uh, when my youngest was five, he was under the impression that if he went to the lights, to the tree and said, ho, 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 that the lights would come on. And every time he said, ho, 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 the lights would in fact come on. And he, he, he loved it, so he would do it all the time. What he didn't know is every time we heard the words, ho, 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 the whole family was scrambling to get to the kitchen to be able to hit that remote control and play along with our five-year-old. And the picture here to me is we, we contribute nothing more to the finished work of our salvation than my five-year-old was to the actual turning on of lights in our home. And it's cute and funny when a five-year-old thinks he has magical powers, but it is deadly to think that we can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is by grace alone. That's why Jesus is named God Saves. So last misconception. I find that there are people who believe, and you see different versions of it, but basically believe Jesus came so that God could love me. It's as if God the Father is in an eternal state of anger towards me. He has nothing but wrath towards me. But praise God, Jesus over here, he comes and he stands in between me and that angry God. That's not at all what we see in the Bible, not what we see in this passage. Jesus comes because God the Father loves us. We have one God, three persons, and that one God works together with one will to accomplish the redemption of his people. And in verse 35, we have this beautiful picture of all parts of the Trinity working together at this moment. Follow along, verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and called holy, the Son of God. God the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, all working together here as one for the redemption of His people that He loves so dearly. Not because we deserve it, just because He loves us. While we were still enemies, in the words of Paul, He pursues us, He redeems us, He makes us acceptable. And so now, in contrast to every other worldview, now we do good not because we have to to reach God, but because He has already reached us, and we want to honor Him and worship Him with every aspect of our life. That is the incarnation. Now we have a decision to make. God took on flesh to pursue and redeem His people, and that should elicit a response. And we see in this passage, Mary does just that. 
And, and Mary is actually a really good model for us in this passage to see what, what a biblical response to the incarnation could look like. Mary does two things that we need to pay attention to. First, Mary honestly engages. She honestly engages Gabriel. She asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, she's engaging, she's asking, she's wanting understanding. And in verse 29, we read, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So, so yes, this news is troubling to Mary in some ways, but she's trying to discern. You know, it's, it's not the easiest thing to hear. You're not married yet, but you're pregnant, it's God's son, and you were just going to expect everybody to understand. I mean, she, she is troubled, but she's trying to think intensely and carefully, and I want you to know there is an entirely appropriate place to do that in the faith. There are going to be things that we don't understand. There are going to be truths that are hard to hear, and it is okay to go to God and say, all right, I, I want to be humble. I want to understand. Help me in my understanding. That's an okay response. And then you can contrast that with Zechariah, just about a paragraph before. You may remember that Zechariah is married to Elizabeth. Elizabeth's related to Mary. He's the priest, and he is, they are very old, and they have had seemingly one desire in their marriage to have children. That, has, that, that, that desire has not come to fruition. That would have been hard on so many levels. Uh, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but children are a blessing from the Lord. They are. But in that culture, it had been mistakenly understood that to not have children was a curse, and you've done something wrong. So it's just so, so much difficulty in being in the state. Not only do they want children, the culture would have thought certain things about them. And so you have this angel who shows up to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a child. It's finally going to happen. And how does Zechariah respond? In Luke 1.18, he says, how shall I know this? To which I'm imagining the angel's like, me. <laughs> I'm an angel in front of you, and I'm telling you this. And he says, for I'm an old man, and my wife, and I have to imagine there was a pause here, is advanced in years. <laughs> there is a wrong answer there. I'm old. My, my wife she has a lot of life experience. <laughs> he's, he, he knows what he's doing there. But his response, while it may sound really similar to Mary's, the heart disposition is different. He's not engaging honestly. He's cynically challenging the angel. And, and we, gosh, I want to give him some grace because he's had so many years of disappointment. There's a level of guarding your heart. But even so, we are not called to cynically challenge what God tells us. So Zechariah curses him and, and prevents him from being able to speak until the baby who we would come to know as John the Baptist is born. Honest engagement or cynicism. And if you're here today and you struggle with any of the claims in the Bible, particularly the ones we're looking at in the text, the virgin birth, the incarnation, I want you to know it is okay to honestly engage. And we have resources and people here who would love to walk with you as you seek that kind of understanding. If you fill out a tear-off tab electronically or whatever, I will personally meet with you and walk with these things as best I can with you. We want you to be able to honestly engage in things that are difficult for whatever reason, but cynically challenging the truths that God brings to us. That will never end well for anybody. 
So then secondly, after Mary honestly engages, she surrendered fully. This starts in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And as this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And here it is. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. And the angel departed. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. That's surrendering. She's surrendering God's to God's will. And, and surrendering, I can remember hearing this term before I was a Christian and even a little bit afterwards, and it just never landed on me, right? Because I think of surrendering as failing. And, you know, a general surrenders his army when he's lost. A, a wrestler surrenders when he's been beat. But what's going on in this kind of surrender? We're surrendering the fact that we have failed to be God of our own lives. We have failed, but we're not surrendering what we really want for something secondary. We're, we're surrendering this lesser will for our lives, our own, for something that's even better. The true God who is capable and perfect at being God over our lives. So what Mary's doing is surrendering the lesser for the greater. And it's, it doesn't mean that there won't be sacrifice in our life. I mean, there is going to be a lot of sacrifice for Mary in this life. She is going to be talked about, gossiped for the rest of her life. If God did not intervene, and she did not know that he would at this time, Joseph would probably divorce her, and she would go on to have to watch her son die the most horrific public execution I could possibly imagine. Surrendering to Jesus absolutely brought hardships for Mary, but for Mary it was worth it because God was with her and through those trials... Through her son comes the redemption of humankind. Surrendering is literally giving up our own captivity for freedom. And, you know, I think about Mary and, you know, she, she didn't have all the information, but she, she had enough. Just like in the Bible, we're not told everything, but we have more than enough to know what we're supposed to do, how to be saved, where we look for satisfaction and hope. I was in the car on, it was yesterday, driving with my daughter, and, uh, and the song Mary Did You Know came on, and I said, hey, Ivy, do you, do you think Mary knew there was something special going on in there? And she kind of rolled her eyes, and she said, Dad, Gabriel literally told her. <laughs> what, what does she not know? <laughs> it's like, good girl, you got this. But she had enough. She didn't know how all this was going to transpire, but she knew the God of the universe had entered into her life and said, would you trust me with your life? And she says, I will. Your will be done. C.S. Lewis once said that the problem, it isn't that we desire too much, it's that we desire too little. We're so easily satisfied with the lesser because we don't desire the greater. That's the problem. No one is ever going to look back at the end of their lives and, and regret any way that they surrendered their lives to Jesus. And in fact, I believe every Christian at the end of their life will look back and wonder, why did I not do it sooner and why did I not do it more fully? Because it is in the surrender to what is better that we find true satisfaction. 
both in this life and the next, but we'll get to that. But here's a point I really want to make. When we surrender, we surrender all of our life, every aspect of our life to all of Jesus. And so, you know, when people don't pop in in your house the way that they used to, but, but occasionally someone might call us and say, I'm, I'm stopping over, and what happens in our house, I'll tell you our secret, the house is generally messy because we have four kids and a wife in full-time grad school, and so we'll gather everything up and put it in one part of the house so it looks kind of clean when you get in. I'm sure we're the only people who do this. But that's, that's a picture of how we surrender part of ourselves to Jesus, but not all of us. We take the junk and we put it over here where nobody can see it, but we need to surrender all the rooms of our lives to Jesus, and this other part is just as important. We need to surrender it to all of Jesus, because historically, through church history, church has had a hard time embracing all of Jesus. You know, sometimes they've leaned more to the, the humanity side, maybe even at the at the expense of his divinity. Other parts of church history have done the opposite. They've embraced Jesus's divinity, but not his humanity. But in either case, what's going on, you're saying, I want that part of Jesus, but not that part of Jesus. And we do the same thing today. I, I, last week, I read uh, Colin Hansen's new biography on Tim Keller. It's the first biography that's ever been written on him. And, uh, and there is this part about a woman named Barbara Boyd. And she was, had a tremendous influence in Tim Keller's life, so tremendous that it, he talks about uh, the teachings that she brought to him as crucial for his surrender to all of Jesus. And I'm going to read you this, this section. She told Keller, if you want to invite me into your house and you say, come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd, I wouldn't know what to do because I'm Barbara Boyd. In fact, I could even say this half of Bar. I, in fact, I couldn't even say this half of Barbara. This half is Barbara, and this half is Boyd. So I'll just bring that half in because I'm all Barbara and I'm all Boyd. I'm both. So you either get all of me or you get neither of me. If you say I would like the loving Jesus, I would like the helping Jesus, I would like the Jesus I can ask to help me through the hard times, but I don't want the holy Jesus, I don't want the powerful Jesus, I don't want the Jesus who is great, you get no Jesus at all. She said, think about this for a minute. If the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, do you realize then that the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high? Just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck in the universe. And the Bible says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus holds the universe together with the power of his word. She said Jesus Christ holds the universe together with his pinky. Then she looked, she smiled, and she said, do you ask somebody like that to come into your life and be your assistant? We surrender to all of Jesus, or we don't get Jesus. We surrender all of our lives to all of Jesus. And for those who do make that surrender, we get the blessing of comfort. Comfort in this life and comfort in the life to come. Only in the incarnation, this is Hebrews 4, do we get a God who understands our plight, who sympathizes with us. He knows our temptations. He's felt these temptations, our trials, our afflictions. He gets us. 
I think it was two years ago, and I know I've told this story, so we'll, we'll shelve it away after this, but I went to have lunch with one of my kids because it was his birthday, and he was really down because everybody at school had forgotten his birthday. Nobody knew it was his birthday. He was sad, and I, I was thinking this is a good gospel moment, and I said, buddy, I mean, I'm sorry. This is really hard. I know you had high expectations, but you know, because Jesus took on flesh, he gets how you feel. He understands your emotions and, may, and the temptations that you may be feeling right now to be angry or self-pity or whatever it is that you feel. Jesus gets it, man. To which he said, Dad, no one ever forgets Jesus' birthday. <laughs> it's like, well, that's a good point. But they might have in his life, when, when he was in his earthly ministry, you know, Jesus would have... He, been tempted in all kinds of ways. He would have absolutely experienced people gossiping, chattering, chatting, uh, slandering about where maybe he come from, come from, came from, what his wife, his mom might have done. When we're scared about our health, when we're scared or anxious about our finances, when we're lonely, when we're depressed. We have access to the ministry of Jesus who understands. And there's some, there's some people who have, have said, well, how do, if Jesus never gave in to sin, how does he really get our temptations? And I'm, I'm drawing on C.S. Lewis here, but, but Lewis says he gets them more than you would ever understand your temptations because he endured them even more. We give up. He knows what that temptation is like 10 minutes later, an hour later, a day, a week, a month later without having given in. So he gets our plight and our temptations even more than we do because he never gave up. He kept on fighting. About two years ago-ish, I was talking with a man who lost his wife. And he told me that um, he appreciated all the nice words that people said you know, afterwards and at the funeral. He really did. But he said... The words only go so far because they don't understand. They've not experienced the loss that I experienced. But my friend Bill, he does get it. He lost his wife too. So when I talk with Bill, there, there's a measure of comfort because I know he understands what I'm going through. And in that moment for me, that was just the, the, the faintest glimpse, but it was a glimpse of the comfort we get in Jesus in this life because he understands how we feel. Because he wasn't only fully divine, he was also fully human. And because he was both, he gets our temptations and our trials and our afflictions and our fears. He understands us. So when we have these trials, when we have surrendered to Jesus, we get to go to him and find comfort. And he is there to offer us comfort. We can run to Jesus who understands what we're going through because he left the heavenly throne room and humbled himself to taking on flesh as a baby in the beginning, to live a life where at times in his earthly ministry he did not even have a place to lay his head, and he would go on to die the death that all of us deserve. It's not just a death on that cross. As he died, he experienced the wrath of God that every Christian combined deserves. No one has traveled farther or sacrificed more for us than Jesus has. And he's saying, you can come to me. 
You can come to me in this life and I will comfort you low. I will be with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's not just saying this. He's proven it because he came here and took on flesh. And because Jesus never sinned, Jesus paid the consequences of our sins on the cross, and because he died and resurrected, Jesus defeated death. And at that moment, he opened a door into a life where we can live for eternity and never know anything but comfort. The Christmas season is about God breaking into the world in a way that will ultimately fix everything. And the caution you know, we have to have, when, when we think about this, is not, well, I'm going to use my friend Dr. Michael Allen's words, we, we need to f- not fall into eschatological escapism. So that basically means that our hope isn't just for a better world, a world where we don't have temptation and strife and all those things. Our hope is to be with Jesus, the only one who can really satisfy and comfort us. That's what we're hoping in. Yes, there are going to be a lot of other blessings on the other side of this life. If we believe in the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be reunited with old friends and loved ones. We will have bodies that will not fail us. But the reason we have the comfort, the joy, and the satisfaction that we long for is because we will be with Jesus, who we were designed to be satisfied by. That's the hope that we have in this season. God has ensured that that will happen for those who believe in the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if it sounds far-fetched to you, Look at this passage and hear the angel say, for nothing is impossible with God. This is the God we worship, the God who pursued us to be born of a virgin, to take on flesh, to die for our sin, to comfort us in this life, and to establish a world, a kingdom to come where we will only know comfort. There's a lot of fun stuff that happens at Christmas. There's some not so fun stuff that happens at Christmas. But let's make sure this Christmas we're keeping the main thing before us. And maybe in the anxieties of finances or family or whatever it is this Christmas, maybe some of you, this is your first Christmas without a parent or a spouse or a friend. For for all those emotional trials and lows in this season, let's keep the main thing in front of us. Jesus, the second person, the Trinity, took on flesh to fix all those problems. And those problems are ultimately fixed because we get to be with him. Sinful people who don't deserve any kind of good response from God, we get to be with him for eternity and get nothing but his grace and his love and his mercy and satisfaction and comfort that we can only begin to imagine in this life. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for these truths, and we pray that you would make them real in our hearts, that we would really ponder these things, that they would not stay in our heads, but that they would be felt in our souls. Would that be true more of each of us today? God, convict us of ways that we are not surrendering parts of us to all of you, and give us the desire to. Let us know it's going to be sweet. Let us know there will be joy and satisfaction And God, if anybody's here today and has never given their life to you, give them the desire to submit to you, to surrender to you. None of us knows how that will play out in this life, but we know how it will end. And we know you will be with us every step of the way. 
God, we love you, we thank you, and we pray this in the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.